When I found out I was gonna be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Hey, Alyssa, you sound a little bit under the weather today. What's going on with you? Well, Erin... My body is doing the perfect storm reenactment of this scene with George Clooney where he fights the rogue wave because I got my second Moderna shot. Oh, man. You know, uh, it sounds like you're not feeling too well. No. Grateful for science. Grateful for science. For science. And I think you're about a four out of ten. I'm about a, I'm about a four out of ten right now. In my heart, you are a ten out of ten. And the Girl. fact that you're vaccinated now means that in two weeks... You're going to feel 10 out of 10 when you have to leave your house. it means at some point, though we are not huggers, we can hug. (gasps) That's going to be amazing. We can hug. I am so excited. I booked my first flight. I'm fully vaccinated. I booked a flight to see my family back in Minnesota over the summer. And I booked it yesterday and I was like, oh my God. Like, this is happening. This is happening. Amen to that. On this week's episode, we are joined by Sophie Akoff of the National Young Farmers Coalition, Tian Tran, and Jalisa Arce to tackle the following questions. How do we get rich people to stop buying up all the farmland and then not using it? What is in and missing from President Biden's big plan to help American families? Do we even want to go back to the office when this is all over? And why are so many real estate listings filled with lies? All this and more right now. And welcome to the show. We actually have some kind of nice, uplifting news today. I like forward-looking news, where it's like, look at the good stuff that could happen. Yeah, that may not change within 24 hours of recording this episode. Right. But like, this is news about good stuff that hopefully will happen, rather than bad stuff that did happen, which is cool. Yes. Um, So tonight, Joe Biden is going to give his first speech to a joint session of Congress as president. Uh, It's not the State of the Union. Don't call it the State of the Union. It is not the State of the Union. I don't know why everybody who talks about this speech has to be like, don't, it's not the State of the Union, but it's... it's. They came up with a catchy acronym years ago, the SOTU, and people can't break themselves from using it. Uh, well, it shouldn't be that hard. People, you know, people in media ostensibly have writing skills. They should <laughs> use their creativity to come up with a new thing. But not me, and not right now, because it's early for me. Um, so... In a normal State of the Union, a president will talk about, you know, what he accomplished over the last year and what he wants to accomplish over the next year. Um, But this speech is going to be about one specific, very big policy proposal called the American Families Plan. And Alyssa, it is a doozy. It's a doozy. Is there anything about the plan that makes you particularly excited? Yes. I am excited for little kids to be able to go to school uh, for free, for pre-K, and the idea that community college may also become free. 
For two years. For two, two years. Two years of free community college. That is pretty fucking great. That's really awesome. There's also a uh, plan in there to make 12 weeks of paid family leave available. Guaranteed paid prenatal family and personal illness or safety leave by the 10th year of the program. Okay, I'm not cool with the by the 10th year of the program. Thing. I know, it's a lifetime. <laughs> we need that yesterday. We you do, know? but the fact that it's in a non-so-to joint address to Congress is uh, exciting. It's a big fucking deal. It's a BFD. It's, it's a BFD. Um, and this is going to sound uh, a little petty of me because I've been on a very eat the rich kick for the last few years, as many of us have been. But one thing that I'm very excited about is the way that this is going to be paid for. Uh, the way that Biden proposes this be paid for, I think it's about a $2 trillion bill. Right. Make rich people pay taxes. That's literally it. Make rich people pay taxes. One of the things that they're planning on getting rid of is something that's called a step-up provision. Basically, if your parents own a ton of stocks, let's say your your great-granddad bought stock in Disney and back when, you know, Walt Disney was anti-Semitic and <laughs> they weren't hiding that. Um and, and like, let's say your great-granddad held on to that stock for his entire life. If he were to sell it right before he died, he would have to pay tax on the capital gain. So how much money that stock gained in value, he would have to pay tax on that. But if he, he were to die before he sold the stock and you were to get the stock, you would, for the purposes of tax, inherit a stock that had a capital gain that started at the value when he died. So basically... Nobody had to pay taxes on the increase in value in that Disney stock that happened over the life of this person who is now dead. This is something that vastly benefits the children of the wealthy um, who didn't work to earn that thing, who really shouldn't probably get off without having to pay taxes on that thing. It would basically make estates pay taxes on those stocks before their uh, heirs access them. And you know what? I think that's great. If we can get some community college out of it, for it. Universal pre-K, an increased child tax credit. Um, some of the changes in Biden's COVID rescue plan made permanent right. um, that benefit families. Um, I'm also pretty excited about the fact that capital gains, uh, the long-term capital gains rate for people earning over a certain amount of money, a lot of money, would go up from 20%. Did you know that the long-term capital gains rate is only 20%? I I did-ish, okay? It's, I'd be lying if I said I had any sort of real understanding of capital gains. <laughs> okay, yeah. It is, I feel like it's one of those things that if more regular people knew about it, they would be like, holy shit, why the fuck do rich people get to do that? Same thing with hedge fund managers, um getting to characterize their earnings as something that doesn't count as income, so it's taxed as a at a lower rate than everybody else's income. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. It's really, really, like, of course, like, theoretically, the top tax rate is, like, 35% right now. Um, I think Biden wants to raise it uh, for the top taxpayers. Um, but people don't understand that people that have the most money do not pay that tax rate. Correct. That because they're not earning it in income. They're earning it in capital gains, and they're doing, like, weaselly rich people. Jiggery pokery. Jiggery pokery, indeed. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about the American Family Plan. One thing that I'm less excited about is the way— 
that it deals with um, healthcare. You know, you and I are both team Medicare for all. Yes. It just, it's just got to be that way. And I don't really like the pussyfooting around in the American Families Plan when it comes to making ceilings so people are only going to pay 10% of their income per month for coverage. What is coverage getting you? That's the whole thing that no one addresses. It's like, yeah, we pay for coverage, and then you go to use it, and it's not good for anything. Even when you something catastrophic happens, which is usually the least expensive kind of insurance you could buy is catastrophic coverage. If something truly terrible happens, you can go to the doctor. Until you go to the emergency room and find out that they sent your blood work to a lab that wasn't, quote, in your network. Like, These are things that American people should not have to worry about because so many other countries don't, and we should be better than that. And this is our our chance to show it. Yeah, this is uh, this doesn't really do enough to deal with the problem with American healthcare coverage. The cost of coverage is is out of control, but the quality of coverage is awful. It's fucking shitty. I have insurance through the WGA, the Mm -hmm. Writers Guild, and it is good, quote unquote, good insurance. Um, I had to pay $130 out of pocket to have them take my IUD out. (laughs) That's extreme. Right. For people who've never had an IUD or perhaps don't have a uterus, um, it is a 0.5 second procedure that involves pulling a string. (laughs) And it costs $130. Look, and I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. And that fucking sucks. Um, And Aaron, we pay like $1,800 a month for our coverage. And I went for my annual gynecological exam and ended up with multiple bills from a lab totaling over $300. So what did that cover? I'm honestly tired of paying for insurance company skyscrapers and insurance company company executive bonuses. I would rather just pay for healthcare. Yes. Um, That's what I would like to pay for instead of all of this, this gobbledygook. What was the jiggery pokery? The jiggery pokery. About coverage, like unless quality of healthcare coverage actually catches up uh, with how much money we're paying for it, then this is, that's sort of useless. And I know we're bitching. This is like a small part of the plan. The other stuff is really, really good. There's some really good stuff in there for people of color who want to attend um, HBCUs. Um, there's some really good stuff in there for people with no children uh, because it it uh, increases the earned income tax credit. Yeah. There's something in there for just about everybody, but I will continue to harp on this, this uh, healthcare thing until something sufficient is done. And I do not believe that this plan sufficiently addresses healthcare. We will harp together. We will harp, harp, harp until the cows come home, as my grandma would say. <laughs> um, okay, on to the latest New York Post rat fuck. Ugh. <laughs> Lisa, can you explain to the listeners what a rat fuck is if they don't already know? I mean, Aaron, how do you even put rat fuck into words? Basically, they force someone to do something really bad that they knew was untrue. Okay. About yes. a fucking vice president of the United States. Right? right. Is that a rat yes. fuck? Yes. So this, that's that particular rat fuck. A rat fuck is something that I believe Karl Rove, uh, who is a potato man. Um, Carl Don't do Rove, that to potatoes. I'm sorry, you're right. Potatoes are delicious <laughs> and very, very um, versatile. Satisfying. Um, I apologize. Karl Rove is none of those things. But Karl Rove did do a thing 
uh, a rat fuck, which is basically where you plant a story that is a very bad version of a story that has some elements of truth to it, but the very bad version of the story is a lie. So that story kind of comes out first, and then um, when the truth comes out, people have to walk it back to the reality of the small version of the story. But by that point, everybody already already has this big bad version that's kind of untrue in their heads. And so while the original version of the story had granules of truth in it, it wasn't actually true. So here is the way that this rat fuck played out. There was a story that ran in the New York Post that claimed falsely that children at migrant detainment centers were being issued copies of Kamala Harris's book. Were being issued copies of it. And that story was, it turns out, uh, based on a photo of one child that had one copy of Kamala Harris's book, which it actually turns out was from a care package that was assembled by volunteers in the community who take donations. And that book may have been in one set of donations. Um, But by the time the truth came out, which is that that story is completely false, Um, that had been dominating conservative news cycles for four days. And uh, it was out there that this was happening, and it actually wasn't happening. And in fact, um, the story was so false that the New York Post reporter whose byline appeared on the story uh, has resigned, saying that she was pressured into writing that story, the original story, and that she feels bad that she didn't push back harder. She'd been a reporter for the Post since the 90s, and they forced her to do that. I mean, and you know, as we were just talking about, it's like her job is wrapped up. She probably has a pension. She has health care. She just quit all those things because they put her in a completely untenable situation where a bell was rung that could not be unrung. Right. And the damage had been done. Yep, exactly. And it sort of reminds me of a of a rat fuck that the New York Post was also behind back in October. Do you remember the Hunter Biden laptop rat fuck? Oh, the... The laptop with all the stuff on it. Yeah, that where where Rudy Giuliani somehow got a hold of a laptop that Hunter Biden had apparently given to a place in Maryland. It was completely, it was something that was so wild that Fox News turned it down. Yeah. And um, the New York Post published the story with a reporter's byline who didn't even know that her byline was going to be on the story. It was another another rat fuck. Another another total lie was uh, this weekend. Fox News was really upset about um, Joe Biden supposedly banning red meat. Oh God, no. I know that was so confusing. I was off Twitter a couple hours, and I'm like, "What's everyone talking about?" Not true. And somebody was complaining about plant based beer becoming a thing. That uh. was hilarious. It took me a minute to be like, "Wait, beer is plant based." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I know. Wait, who, what are you maniacs drinking meat-based beer? That's just blood, guys. But to the, but to the point, blood. when I heard the story at first, I was like, that's going to give me a stomachache. And then I was like, wait a minute, all beer gives me a stomachache and it's all plant-based. Oh my God, what is this story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. it's just really weird. It's like, here's the thing about all of this. Like Kamala Harris's book, not true, not a story. Meat ban, not true, not a story. Hunter Biden's laptop, not true, not a story. If these bitches could even remotely govern, they would not be only talking about this stupid shit. 
the bitches can't govern. And you know what's kind of amazing is that so much of this links back to Rudy Giuliani because this is how he does his job and he loves to plant these stories. And do you know what's happening to Rudy Giuliani as we speak? Uh, I don't know, a portrait that is very handsome somewhere oh, is let me just Let me just give you this nugget. Federal investigators execute search warrant at Rudy Giuliani's apartment. Couldn't happen to a bigger dick. Yeah, I can't say I feel in any way bad about that. No. Um, I'm, I wish him ill. I wish him ill. He has hurt America, and uh, we're all worse off. We wish him a long and unforgiving sentence. Yeah, I hard agree on that. Um, okay, so that's those are the two. You know, it, it was the American family plan of of days. It was the rat fuck of days. You know, there's highs and lows. Highs and lows. Um, highs and lows. But um, I'm looking forward to the Biden speech tonight. I'm really interested to hear him talk about this, and um, I'm really looking forward to never talking about a fake beef ban again. But oh my god, feel like we're gonna we're gonna hear about it. But at least now we know. Beer is plant-based. <laughs> At least, yes. Don't drink meat beer. Don't drink meat beer or chemical beer. Chemical beer is just bleach. It's- that's not that's not beer at all. That's poison. You're going to get very sick. Um, but let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk a little bit about the mask recommendation changes. We're going to talk about going back to the office. And we're going to be joined by a couple of our favorite people. So stick around. Welcome back to Hysteria. Listeners, have you eaten food recently? Or do you plan to eat food in the near future? You have a farmer to thank for that. Today, we are excited somebody doing important work on behalf of the people and profession behind the food you eat is joining us. Sophie Akoff is the co-executive director of the National Young Farmers Coalition, a nonprofit organization dedicated to representing, mobilizing, and engaging young farmers. A lot of her work focuses on the challenges young farmers, and especially people of color, face when becoming farmers. Sophie, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're so glad you're here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were first drawn to farming, the industry, and how that's informed your policy advocacy? Sure, absolutely. I discovered agriculture in college, like so many young farmers like me who are not from farm families and so have an an alternative route to agriculture. Um, I was working actually on Uh, getting better food into my campus dining hall in Connecticut at Wesleyan University and started touring local farms and and getting to meet some of the producers who I was helping to get into our food service and realized that we had an on-campus farm at Wesleyan. And so started managing the farm, um, you know, had all those moments that, that folks new to agriculture have of realizing how broccoli is grown and and the mistakes that come along with it also, like planting a whole acre of feed corn instead of sweet corn that we were so proud of, um, <laughs> but was just so, so drawn to the work, um, both of stewarding the land that we were able to steward there, providing food for our community, and just that connection to what we are eating and and feeding those around us. Um, 
My husband, Andrew, had a much longer career in agriculture than I did. I started organizing with the National Young Farmers Coalition uh, pretty soon after um, my first apprenticeship uh, in the Hudson Valley. Uh, I'm an organizer at heart and knew that uh, representing farmers was really my my place in this movement. Um, but Andrew worked um, for the past eight years to start his farm business and worked on so many operations and focused on organic vegetables for CSA and just faced all of the barriers that young farmers are facing getting started in agriculture. You know, he had $30,000 of student loan debt. We, you know, we couldn't find land that we could afford in the Hudson Valley, which is, you know, just a few hours from New York City, but has incredibly prime, important ag soil, um, so close to market, but it's increasingly being purchased by non-farmers um, who are, you know, buying up second homes and, and rural estates and and building houses that drive that, that farmland out of agriculture forever. Um, but we couldn't make it work. And that, I think the important thing there is to recognize our privilege um, as young white farmers with family who are supportive uh, financially as well. Um, and just the reality of where we're at in this country right now, where for young farmers of color, those challenges that all young farmers face, like access to land and capital, uh, health care and student loans, those are compounded um, by systemic racism that has really dictated who can farm in this country. Uh, and as a result, 95% of farmers in the U.S. are white, and that's not an accident. Mm -hmm. Sophie, right now, farmers over 65 outnumber farmers under 35 by a ratio of 6 to 1. Like you just said, people are fleeing places like New York City and buying up the farmland with no intention of farming. Can you explain a little bit more why is this a problem and how does it impact land access for the next generation? And can the government actually play a role here? Yes, absolutely. That is where I want the government to play the biggest role, because I do see farming as a public service. Our citizens have a right to access affordable and nutritious food, and our young farmers are so excited to do this work um, and to provide that food. But land is the number one barrier. And it was a barrier before COVID, uh, the number one barrier for young farmers, uh, both first-generation and multi-generation farmers in every region of the country. That's uh, the number one reason why farmers don't get started and why they leave agriculture. And since COVID, of course, it's been exacerbated around our um, major cities where, where folks are, are moving out um, and purchasing farmland in Connecticut. Just anecdotally, one of our farmers there said that all of the properties that had been on the market for a few years were snatched up within a few weeks of the pandemic. So uh, we're at a critical inflection point. And AFT, American Farmland Trust, just saw, um, or just came out with a statistic about 371 million acres of American farmland uh, could change hands in the next 20 years. So the challenge with non-farmers purchasing farmland, and it. In the Midwest, it's often farmers, but larger scale farmers, more capitalized farmers who are out competing young farmers for the land. But young farmers with student loans and without, you know, good credit struggle to outcompete 
non-farmers or more established farmers for the land. You know, they are often relying on USDA ownership loans to purchase land, which can take a very long time. There's no pre-approval. That's something that we're working on with the new administration. Um, But while they're waiting for months for their loans to come through, folks are able to come in with either, you know, traditional mortgage or cash, all cash, and and outcompete those farmers for the land. So we're really gearing up. Uh, We've been working on land access from the beginning of our coalition. We're really gearing up for the next farm bill, which we think is the make or break farm bill for land in this country. And are we going to protect land for the next generation? Uh, Are we going to give land back to Indigenous folks and Black farmers who have lost so much farmland. Um, And I think it really requires a national investment in farmland transition to do that land reparations work, that land rematriation work, and ensuring that young farmers and farmers of color have access to the land because it's not going to happen through the market alone. Uh, We need real acknowledgement of the public service of farming, acknowledgement of you know, decades of farm policy that it's excluded farmers of color from owning that land and make it available and accessible. Mm-hmm. And so if you're building off what you're saying, you know, you mentioned that most farmers are white. 95% of farmers who are farm owners and principal operators are white. And the majority of the labor on the farms is done by Latinx farm workers. How is the Young Farmers Coalition working? You mentioned that they're working to make farm ownership more accessible to people who perform the labor. How are you making farm ownership something that people who perform the labor view as feasible for them? Like, how do you how do you uh, promote a culture that makes farming something that people of color would want to leave cities to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned farm labor being, you know, overwhelmingly Latinx. Um, one critical necessary change the coalition is working on in solidarity is immigration reform, mm-hmm. which, you know... Um, may not be an immediate uh, or an obvious solution to, we need young farmers on the land, owning land and producing food for our communities. We already have this incredible, talented um, base of farmers who are, in many cases, interested in owning their own operations, but because of their citizenship status, are unable to purchase land to benefit from USDA programs. So creating a pathway to citizenship for farm workers is I think one of the most uh, transformative solutions that we have in agriculture to help folks of color enter agriculture careers. Um, And yeah, I I wanna also just say that we work in a, in a coalition of organizations that are supporting farmers of color. So we, as an organization, have really committed to this work, to centering young farmers of color in our work. Um, But we are building upon the work of so many organizations led by Black, Indigenous, and people of color who've been working on this forever. Uh, Organizations like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, and our Tribal Ag Council, just to name a few. Um, and they really are the ones leading on, you know, the solutions that our communities need to start and keep farming. Uh, in New York here, we have an incredible ecosystem of 
BIPOC-led organizations that are really helping farmers uh, of color who often are coming from New York City, um, from urban areas, you know, have been doing community gardens, uh, come from that world and want to get into rural agriculture. And they have an amazing ecosystem where there's Farm School NYC, where they can learn the urban agriculture. Um, and then also, yes, yeah, the practical training of how to be a farmer. Uh, there's the Soul Fire Farm Institute, which is a place to learn rural agriculture and have immersion at a beautiful farm in upstate New York. Um, there's the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, NEFOC, that is uh, working specifically on this land challenge to get land in the hands of Black farmers in New York State. Uh, so our work is um, to amplify their solutions and message on the national platform that we do have as the National Young Farmers Coalition. And importantly, to be a policy voice, you know, we have a lot of access um, from our work over the last 10 years in changing state and federal policy and ensuring that when we walk into those rooms uh, with state legislators and our members of Congress, that we are asking them, what are you doing to support farmers of color? Mm-hmm. And uh, really quick, just to wrap up, how can consumers who live in cities or suburbs support their local farmers? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important way is to buy directly from farmers. I think CSAs, of course, have had such a boom in the COVID pandemic because people recognize that that safety and security of getting to pick up their produce, uh, meat, et cetera, from their local farm. The CSA model is actually originates from uh, Black farmers in the South. And it's ingenious that um, consumers can pay their farmers at the beginning of the season and give the farmers that startup capital um, to, to buy seeds and, and all that. And the, the consumer really gets to share in the risk and the reward of the season along with their farmer. So I really encourage everyone to consider getting a CSA box from a local farmer. That's awesome. You know, my I grew up on a farm-ish kind of hobby farm where we raised our own vegetables and my parents are too old to work the like 40 acres of land. Yeah. So they have our neighbors who are Amish work the land. They let them use the land and in exchange, the Amish give them half a cow at the end of the season. So that's my parents' Northern Wisconsin CSA. <laughs> they that's get like, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the field doesn't go to waste. They get to raise wheat and then, you know, they get half a cow. So my dad yeah, sends me like. That's such a supportive way to, yeah, make your yeah. land available to farmers. Yeah. I Amish- do, for folks who are listening who do have access to land, just uh uh, such a powerful thing you could do is make that available to a young farmer to get their business started. And honestly, getting paid in produce or meat is like such a nice thing too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the work you do. And we will keep an eye on that forthcoming farm bill and uh, hope that all the changes you guys are are advocating for get enacted. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. Cheers.
This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, mean, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back to Hysteria, the podcast where we will only call you a cunt if we love you or if we hate you. There are no lukewarm cunts here. All right, before we get started on personal political, Alyssa had to jump off. So it's just me and these two incredible ladies I'm going to introduce right now. First up, she is a best-selling author, writer, speaker, and activist, Julissa Arce. So glad to be back. It's good to see you. I know. I always get so excited to see you. And your TikToks. Oh, thank you. I look at your Instagram every night before I go to sleep to just see what TikToks you have curated. So thank <laughs> you for that labor. I appreciate that labor you do for me. You know, I think I've trained the algorithm. And I don't want to brag, guys. I know like that bragging is looked down on, but I think that I've trained the algorithm to only serve me good TikToks. I love it. It's like, yeah, it's like I've taught it how I like, I mean, well, this is what TikTok thinks everybody likes, but I like funny lesbians. I like uh, old gay men. I like cute children. And uh, I like feminism. And it all kind of gives, gives me a nice mix of things. So thank, thank you, Julissa. Well, I appreciate um, it. Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, up next, you know her, you love her. She is the queen of Illinois, Tian Tran. <laughs> it's, you know, hi, so good to see you. I'm obsessed with that title, waiting for someone to be like, actually, I'm the queen of Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so happy to be back. Have you had anybody try to like challenge you for the crown? Have you gotten like any? No, no. Well, I feel like you're either going to have somebody show up at your house and be like, we need to have a duel. I really hope not. <laughs> or you're going to get like fan art that is like you as the queen of Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought that it's like all of Illinois. It's not like a specific yeah. city or neighborhood. It's just like the whole entire the whole, state. The whole state. The whole yeah. state. I love it. <laughs> Illinois, <laughs> Illinois has a r- historically really bad record with governors. So, like, they just keep going to prison. I, like, Illinois politics is is very hilarious and depressing. Um, but it doesn't really matter what party they belong to. They're just it, there's like a, a governor's mansion to prison pipeline in Illinois. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that it probably is a good idea for them to just totally get rid of that office and replace them with a queen. I think. Yeah, and I'll break that. Cycle of corruption. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, ladies, uh, I want to talk a little bit about an announcement that the CDC made this week about vaccinations and mask wearing. I feel like the CDC made this announcement because it wanted to be like, hey, if you get vaccinated, look at all the cool stuff you can do. But a lot of people took it as more like, the CDC is telling us we don't have to wear masks anymore. So, Julissa, I would love to hear from you. What did you make of the CDC's new um, masking recommendations? And will that change the way that you behave at all? I have a lot of feelings about this because I feel like I just spent the last year and a half telling people to wear a mask and uh, trying to convince people that they should still wear a mask even though they're vaccinated, which was like the original guidance. You know, I feel like I just posted something on my Instagram. Like I did this whole little video and I posted it to like encourage people to still wear a mask even after they were vaccinated. And I kind of feel like this CDC announcement is just creating confusion. It's creating a lot of confusion. Even like some of the Instagram posts that I saw from White House officials that were like, you know, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outdoors anymore. And then if you read the caption, though, it was like, if you're not in a large crowd outside, you don't have to wear a mask. If you don't have to do all these other things, then you don't have to wear a mask. But most people are just going to look at the caption and run with it. I mean, they're not going to look at the caption. They're just going to look at the picture and run with it, right? And so I think it's it's confusing and I... I still don't feel comfortable like being without a mask in anywhere. I mean, I went for a walk yesterday still with my mask on just because I've gotten so used to it. And it's not a big deal. Like it's not a big deal to wear a mask. So I'm still going to keep wearing it even though I'm vaccinated Um, because I also don't want to get in the habit of not wearing it. And then like I'll forget it and I'll be at the grocery store and have to come back home to grab a mask because I forgot. Yeah, or you'll have to wear like one of those buffs that like Republicans wear that look like the top of a the top of a turtleneck and it's like yeah, that's not doing anything. <laughs> um, Tian, what do you what do, what do you make of 
the, uh, you're in a different part of the country. So you're yeah. in the Midwest where uh, I think people's behavior around masking has been different for a long time. So how do you, what did you think of the announcement yesterday and will it change your behavior at all? I mean, same with Julissa. I feel like people aren't reading the fine print on some of this stuff. And I feel the same way when masks were announced, when it was like, hey, if you wear a mask, it actually doesn't protect you. It pr and then people were like, oh, I'm not going to read what the rest of the mask wearing is helpful for, which is like protecting other people. Um, and so I think with America's uh, obsession with toxic freedom. I think that, uh, <laughs> I think people are going to just uh, like, you know, this is them not wearing masks at all anymore, no matter what the situation outside large groups, let's get music festivals back. I feel like that's like the next big thing that people are like, let's all go to crowds. And like, I don't know that the, did you guys all see the, that the UFC took place in Florida indoors with no masks yeah. to a full capacity crowd. And I was like, this yeah. is, we are, we don't like, I'm vaccinated. I'm going to wear masks. Like I'm going to keep wearing it until I feel comfortable. And there is like a general, you know, more research about how long the vaccines last and like how it affects children. We still don't know. I feel like there are so many question marks still. And having that CDC announcement was just like a, I think people are going to read what they want to read, which is you don't have to wear masks anymore. Mm -hmm. Instead of what the message was supposed to be, which is please get vaccinated. Yes. So that you can feel comfortable. Like, so if you're, if you're somebody who's like, doesn't want to wear a mask outside, you can not wear a mask outside if you're vaccinated. Like if you're fully vaccinated, I, I think I'm coming at this from a little bit different place than you guys. And I don't want to get I, I'm. I don't judge people who in a want fight. To you don't want to get in a fight with us. <laughs> I don't want to get in a fight. No, I think. I th the thing is, like, I don't judge people who want to continue wearing masks outside. I think there are reasons that are perfectly reasonable, like uh, people who have really bad allergies, for example. I've heard that wearing a mask outside can actually be great for you during pollen season because oh, really? you get less of them up in your, you know, mucus surfaces. Um, <laughs> But here's the thing is, like, it's been established for quite some time that spread of COVID outdoors isn't really as nearly, nearly the concern that spreading or getting COVID indoors is. So, like, there hasn't been a single super spreader event that took place exclusively outdoors. The Rose Garden event where everybody got sick at Amy Coney Barrett's, uh, like, announcement um, that had an indoor component to it. There was like a big indoor cocktail party where people were not masked and yelling at each other's faces. Um, Donald Trump's rally where Herman Cain got COVID and later died, uh, that was indoors. You know, like I think the Florida thing, the the MMA thing that we're talking about, that was indoors. Like I think outdoors, not wearing a mask is, I I'm glad that it's finally becoming talked about as something that can be acceptable. Now, I also think that another important component of this is like people have really been traumatized by the last year. Um, it's really scary. Even if you haven't been personally affected by uh, having a member of your family get COVID or getting COVID yourself, just seeing all of it has been really horrible. And I think that it's really important moving forward, even if you're vaccinated and you you personally are comfortable not wearing a mask, you 
we this really has to be the summer of respecting people's personal space. Um, I think especially like if you're outdoors, I think like don't get close to people, Mm -hmm. even though the chances of spreading the disease are are very, very low outdoors. Like, could we just try to be chill to each other and like let people move into the next phase as they see fit? Um, I also think like, I don't know, Julissa, do you think that people, I mean, you live, you live in, in LA where I live. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed a lot of people outside just like universally wearing masks? I mean, it seems to me that a lot of people have just kind of been doing whatever they want this whole time. Yeah. I mean, I do think people have been doing whatever they want the whole time. I, um, so I used to live in a much more, uh, foot traffic neighborhood, uh, before I moved, before I moved into this house. And I did see that a lot of people there were still wearing masks outdoors. Um, you know, like for like I went to the Grove a few weeks ago and like a shopping center, like an outdoor shopping center, and um, everybody was still wearing a mask mm. out outdoors. But maybe it's because it's a public space versus like even in the middle of the pandemic, uh, where everything was shut down and trails were just starting to open, and I'd go on hikes, and a lot of people were not wearing masks, and it would really bother me um, that they weren't wearing masks, even though we are outdoors. But I just felt like you know, because it was still like the middle of the pandemic. And I think a lot of this research about the disease not being spread outdoors as much as it was being spread indoors wasn't really out there. So I think mm-hmm. people were just not wearing a mask just because they didn't feel like it, not because there was some sort of research or scientific reason for them not to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is why I think for me, I would just rather continue to wear a mask because it's, I mean, to me, it's not a big deal. Right. But I don't have like asthma, uh, you know, breathing through a mask is like not hard for me. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I also sort of respect people's relationship with the mask and what they're comfortable with as long as we're all conscious of how our act might affect others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen, I saw an article yesterday basically about how a lot of the reaction to this like new mask guidance was people being like, I'm tired of getting yelled at for the thing that I'm doing. And like, Mm. (laughs) like, Tian, do you see that to be something? Do you think that like, I guess maybe now that we've all been locked away from each other for a year for the most part, um, do you think that like tossing judgment at people has become sort of like a sport? doesn't really matter what side you're coming from. Like, do you think that people have gotten like way over the top with trying to dictate how other people act, whether it is wearing masks or not wearing masks? I mean, I don't think the mask wearing or not wearing mask thing is a new thing of like trying to dictate what people are doing. I think that's just like ingrained in our culture of just like judging people. I'm even just thinking of like, you know, I, I my brain always immediately goes to just like, how judgmental we are of gender and gender presentation. Like, I think it's just like another thing that we're adding to being judgmental. Um, But I think we're all saying kind of saying the same thing as long as like, it's about respect and like being conscientious of like how our actions are affecting other people. And I think the mask wearing and the non-mask wearing has been the like biggest indicator or like easiest thing to immediately kind of cite and mm-hmm. make a judgment call on someone to be like, not that that person doesn't think about other people uh-huh. um, through, throughout the pandemic. Like in Illinois, um, 
as the queen. I've seen some of my <laughs> subjects. Um, <laughs> no, it's just, I, you know, I'm in Champaign and there aren't a lot of high traffic areas. So I've already seen people walking around outside without masks, but as they approach buildings, they'll put them on. Um, and I think that's something that I'll keep doing because I do think that, you know, yes, people are getting vaccinated, but also there's research that says that like, if the distribution is still slow, people are still hesitant to get it. People are missing their second vaccine doses. So I think, I think there's still room to keep caring about other people and just showing some sense of like, acknowledging that your actions have an effect on strangers because of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I'm a hundred percent going to wear a mask. I hope that mask wearing continues forever in airplanes. I like <laughs> cannot believe how gross it is to be in an airplane with other people's mouths. Like, uh, I mean, look, if, if I understand parents of like little kids and how hard it is to make a little kid wear a mask, like, I don't, I can't get upset about someone who can't get their six-year-old to keep a mask on their face. I don't know how hard that is. I imagine it's very hard. So like I can cut those people some slack, but I think like adults who are able-bodied and don't have any other concerns, I think we should continue to wear masks on airplanes like forever. (laughs) Like I would like American airports to look a little bit more like Asian airports where it's like everyone, you just feel cleaner there. You're just like... (laughs) Oh, like I can't feel your breath molecules like landing on my face. Mm. It's just so much. <laughs> it's just so much better. I want to keep wearing a mask only because I don't want to have to ever worry about my mustache ever again. <laughs> like, just put on a mask. Uh, that is my number one reason I love for wearing that. a mask. <laughs> That's great. I wonder how the cosmetic dentistry industry is dealing with the proliferation of masks because like <laughs> Honestly, if your mouth is like barely ever out in public, then I guess people who are like, I'm not going to straighten out my teeth. Like, why would I do that? Like, Invisalign has taken a hit in this pandemic. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I had Invisalign on my bottom teeth for the duration of the pandemic. And it was a great way to hide the fact that I had a thing in my mouth. Where are your retainers, kids? If you have braces when you're a kid, wear your retainer because Invisalign was dorky. It was a dorky <laughs> thing for an adult to have. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another kind of return to normalcy or non-normalcy. A lot of people have been working remotely for the last year. And over the past few weeks, there has been a kind of increased number of conversations about people returning to work in person, in offices. Um It has become, on TikTok, for example, there are a lot of people who um, are posting things about how little they want to go back to work. Uh, But at the same time, people who are working from home, in a lot of cases, are shouldered unfairly with responsibilities of taking care of the home. For example, in heterosexual couples, uh, women who are working from home um, are often complaining that their husbands are acting as though because they're at home, that also means they're available to take care of the children at all times. Um, I think 10 million women have left the workforce. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of factors. In, and like the 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 concept of going back to the office is a very loaded one. Uh, Julissa, I wonder how you feel about whether or not work should return to the office? And if not, is there some sort of hybrid model you think would benefit people? I think that companies are learning that 
people can still do their work from home and in many cases continue to do it as efficiently, if not more so, working from home. And I think that a hybrid model would work in most situations where Uh, People don't have to go back to the office 100% where there is more flexibility, where working from home isn't being, it doesn't look, doesn't get looked down upon. Because I think that before the pandemic, when people were working from home, it really was sort of in quotations, working from home. And everybody would just assume that that person's taking a day off, that they're not really working. Um, Where I think now, because we've all had to work from home, we realize that when we're working from home, we're actually working from home. Um, and there's a lot of people that don't want to go back to the office for a host of reasons, whether it is, you know, the commute is is terrible or um, being around your coworkers sometimes is god-awful and <laughs> working from home is Name names. Better. <laughs> um Yes, I I think that people who I, I just I hope that companies that employers are more flexible so that they can accommodate their employees' lives. And employees want to stay at home, they can stay at home. If they want to go back to the office, they should be able to go back uh, to the to the office. But this idea that you have to be in an office next to your coworkers, you know, sharing a bathroom is like not necessary anymore. Mm-hmm. Tian, what do you make of this? You're you're in the entertainment industry and some writers' rooms now are going remote. So like, I think, I mean, and, and you and I, I've worked in writers' rooms before too. And like, one thing that I keep thinking about, and I wonder if you've thought of this too, is like a huge barrier to entry in TV, film and TV is like, you have to live, before this, you had to live in one of the most expensive cities in the country in order to have any hope of being in a writer's room. Um, Do you think that going back to in-person will, like, raise the barrier to entry again? Like, how how do you feel about all that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that the old ways of thinking of, like, the hard and fast rules of how you have to work, where you have to be, have changed. And I've worked for the CBS showcase for several years. And, you know, this past year, um, we did it remotely and normally everyone would have to fly to LA, but we've seen that like, that is so hard to ask people to pick up their lives, to live in one of the most expensive cities with no promise of a job right away. And so what's been really exciting to see is that people from these cities that aren't Chicago, LA, and New York are getting opportunities to write and to act, you know, self-taping at home, even though it's an absolute pain in the ass and my ring light is right next to me. But like, it has allowed people to be able to like tape from wherever they are, which I think is it is so helpful and it is like you said, like is is kind of like a democratizing of this industry of like, I hope that people keep letting others like do writer's rooms from wherever they are um, because it, it, the Hollywood is so insular and is and has had such a barrier to access. And I think mm-hmm. even just like working from home, um, just thinking about like accessibility issues too. Like I think just being more flexible and being more considerate of people and like, thinking about all of the different ways that we as, you know, 
responsible adults can take care of ourselves and work and do our things as long as you just have a conversation with us about how best we can work. I think people would be just happier that way. Hmm. I think the entire office structure has a lot of like huge problems with it. Like it's really environmentally dumb, like really stupid um, that everyone has to wake up in the morning at the same time and get in their cars and drive to an office that is releasing tons of pollution into the atmosphere just to be cooled to a temperature that is comfortable for a man wearing a suit while we wrap ourselves in (laughs) office blankets and get up and walk around to get our blood flowing. Um, And then we all stay there for a certain amount of time and then we get in our cars and we drive home again at night. It seems, that seems very wasteful to me. Um, Although I I will say that it is nice to like have some, I like, I kind of like having to go somewhere in my car sometimes so I can like listen to a podcast, but I can do that while I walk around also. Um, So I think that's like super wasteful. I also think that it really limits um, what people who have other responsibilities can do. Like if you're a caretaker of anybody at all, if you have um, children, if you have parents that you're taking care of, if you have a family member who's disabled that you're partially a caretaker for, Mm -hmm. like you can't have a traditional office job unless they give you concessions to work from home. So it like, it seems very wasteful. It seems like it perpetuates a whole bunch of stuff that's just stupid to hang on to. But I really miss like going into the crooked media offices and like walking by someone's desk and being like, how's it going? Like, I really miss recording in the studio together and leaving and going to like the kitchen and talking to like Tanya or Love It on the way out. (laughs) And then like on the way back, seeing that Kieran Deal is still deep in the cubicles (laughs) talking to people. Like I miss some of the camaraderie of that. Uh, I don't know. Julissa, do you like, I know that you've like kind of worked for yourself, but like, do you kind of ever miss working like in an office or being around people in a working environment? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I do. And it was actually really hard for me to get used to working from home. uh, Because I really, I mean, I think that commodity that you're talking about. And also I think, you know, when you see people in person, uh, a lot of times that's unfortunately when things get done, right? Like even even a crooked, like being in the office to record something and then chit-chatting with someone on the side, then it's like, oh yeah, we should do that thing. Or, oh yeah, we should, we should do this project. Or, you know, and I feel like a lot of that stuff isn't happening because you're not seeing people and you have to be more intentional about uh, like setting up meetings or, and I'm so tired of Zooms. And one thing that I do hope happens is that when something used to be a call, it just goes back to being a call. Like we do not need to be on Zoom 24 <laughs> seven. Like let's just go back to texting and phone calls. Um, but it was really hard for me to get used to working from home. And now I think one of the things that has been really helpful is that, um, one, I have a dedicated office space now in my house. Like my, it's, you know, I don't, I no longer, I'm in the living room with like a tiny little desk. Um, so that's been really helpful. And the other thing is that my husband has also been working from home. And so I don't have a coworker, but it is really nice to, you know, be able, like if I see something to be able to just go talk to him about it, even though he's always busy and like ignores me half the time, but um, but it's nice to have someone else in the house, not just, you know, me being a crazy cat lady talking to a cat. Um, so I do wonder how that's going to change when he goes back to work. And then I'm again having to 
to be alone in my house for like the whole entire day. That part was really lonely. Like being at home alone, <laughs> that part sucked. I, I will say that it's such a balance, right? Like I love the flexibility of working from home, but I also love the separation of work and home. Like mm-hmm. my partner is also... Um, has been working from home. She's a professor. And my experience during the pandemic has been like two or three days out of the week, I have to sit quietly and make no noise whatsoever because she's recording a lecture. And that has been hard (laughs) 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 to be absolutely silent. Like I'll, I'll, I'll listen to her through the wall. And when I hear a break in her like lecture take. I'm like, hey, babe, can I use the bathroom? Like (laughs) we are at that level of navigating each other's work. So I think parts of it, like psychologically, I, I know for me, sometimes I do need that other space, um, just to be able to like, be like, okay, I'm going to work now instead of like, I have to work from my dining room table, which is still my home. And it's so easy for me to like go over, turn the TV on and watch soccer. But like, I think just a balance of being able to like, when you work from home, you can, you have that option. And and if you have the ability to get into an office, that would be nice too. Just like, I would love for all the conversations to be available for people to like find the thing that works for them because it is like you said, Aaron, kind of wild that we've expected everyone to follow these exact rules of like, wake up at eight, get there at like by nine and work. Like we all have learned that everyone works and learns differently. So why doesn't our work reflect that? And I hope that mm-hmm. after this, it starts to become more that like, you can kind of tailor the way you work so that you are your best. Mm-hmm. I do really miss coffee shops. Oh yeah, I do really miss working from coffee shops, libraries, <sighs> I love libraries. Shop working. I love library public, working. Public libraries. There are some gorgeous public libraries in every city where I've lived, and like they, I don't think get their due. Like LA mm-hmm. has a beautiful library downtown. Like New York has beautiful libraries. Chicago has incredible libraries. Champaign is a dope library. Oh yeah, <laughs> any any university town probably has a dope mm-hmm. library. But there's a lot of little towns that have libraries that are just like lovingly cared for by these like amazing librarians. Also, as human beings, tended to be amazing. The like number of librarians that are awesome compared to the total number of librarians is high. Like they are an. <laughs> They're a great, they're a great group. Um, this, I feel this, I feel the same way about like middle school teachers. Like there's a, spe- they're a special type of person if you can handle <laughs> teaching middle school. Um, you know, I think I've worked at home since I started writing. So like my first writing job, I worked from Chicago for a company that was in New York. And it can drive you a little bit nuts to just be home all the time because it feels a little bit like mentally wearing the same outfit for days and days. And you feel like you want to like change out of it. You want to, you want to take a shower. You want to go somewhere else. And it just like a change of pace just really, really matters. So like even on some days now where I'm feeling like a little lazy. I try to get myself to go and do something, even if it's just take a walk or go on a drive or something like that. Because being trapped home to do work and also to do non-work makes it feel like everything is both work and not work Mm -hmm. at the same time. So I feel like remarkably unproductive, but also that I'm not having any fun. 
And like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if, yes, I'm, if, yeah. I'm, yes. if I'm trying to relax, I'm like, I should be doing this work. I didn't get enough work done today. And if I'm doing work, I'm like, I think I'm going to relax and read this Reddit forum about crazy parents. You know, like it just, it, I think that the separation really helps like get shit done. Yeah. Cause I think the, the one other thing of work from home that can be a, a, a bit problematic is just like, now I think some people think that you are available at all times cause mm-hmm. you're home mm-hmm. and you've been working and you know, like they know that you're available. Um, and so would, would love to have a check on that too, of just like, you have to stop reaching out to people after a certain time. And I'm totally guilty of that as well, of just being like, oh, I'm home. I know they're home. We've been online the whole time. Let me just shoot. And like, I think we just like, you, you, we're too available. And I think working from home also has like kind of clouded, blurred the lines of when is work done and when is relaxing happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Well, I'm sure we're going to revisit this topic again as we get to the offices and all of us realize that we don't know how to act like people anymore, um, which is another possibility. I Mm. think this pandemic has made me weird. Um, Okay. But let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we are feeling petty about this week. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. And welcome back. We are almost at the end of the show, but not quite at the end of the show, which means it is time for I Feel Petty. But before we get to that, a little housekeeping. This week on What A Day, first of all, I guest hosted twice with your friend and mine, Gideon Resnick. So that was a lot of fun. But Akilah was back for the other three days. And Gideon and Akilah are joined by Rubicon host Brian Boitler to go over his report card on Biden's first 100 days. And comedian Fortune Feimster will stop by for headlines. Don't miss out. Become a member of the WAD squad today. I'm a member of the WAD squad. I am an honorary member of the WAD squad. You should be a full member of the WAD squad. You can listen and subscribe to What A Day wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, the house has been kept. Let's get on to what we are feeling petty about this week. I will go first. Um, This is something that I wrote about for the Daily Beast, but I really feel triumphant about this petty realization. And that is that... You know how like conservatives like dominate the nonfiction bestseller list, like Candace Owens and Donald Trump Jr. and Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, okay. They dominate the bestseller list because political organizations and businesses bulk buy tons and tons of their books. Here's what I feel petty about this week. Nobody reads them. Nobody is actually reading those books. In many cases, those books that those people with their pictures on the cover didn't even write. So essentially, all of like the conservative 
thought leader ecosystem is powered by books that people pretend to write that ev- that other people pretend to read. It's all fucking fake. Here's another reason that I don't think anybody reads those books. Bulk buying is a huge deal, but also I did research for this piece. I looked at a bunch of libraries, um, like most checked out book lists and from 2020. I was just comparing like the 20, the there were 17 conservative books in 2020 that were bestsellers on the New York Times list. Um, and I didn't find any of them on any major library's most checked out list of books list. There it is. If people are reading these books, you would think people would be checking them out from the library. Other books that, that sold really well, like Educated, The Vanishing Half, uh, Becoming, Michelle Obama's book, those all dominated the most checked out books of libraries. No Donald Trump Jr., no Candace Owens, no Dana Perino, no n- no Sean Hannity. Nobody's <laughs> checking those books out from the library. The other thing is uh, conservatives. Okay, so Americans don't read a lot of books. I think the average American reads four books a year, but that number is skewed high because there are some people who are real bookworms and read a lot every year. Um there are demographics that are more likely to not read at all in a year. And the demographic that is least likely to read are people that don't have a college education. And among that demographic, it is men. Men who don't have college educations mm-hmm. are the least likely to read books, especially if they're over 50. Think about men who are over 50 who don't have college educations in this country. Who did they vote for? <laughs> Okay, so people most likely to Detective vote for Donald Aaron. Trump. Detective Aaron. Yeah, I like, this is, I love this. They are the least, <laughs> it is the demographic least likely to read. And you're telling me that this demographic least likely to read a book over the course of the year is devouring the works of Dinesh D'Souza? <laughs> no, these books are being written, printed out, put in boxes, and they sit in warehouses and nobody ever fucking reads them. It is all fake. That's what I feel petty about Wow. Oh my God. I also, those books make me laugh so much because every single title is like, uh, it's, I think it's like what conservatives think that like the left talks use like all the time, like triggered, you can't cancel the truth or like safe space. (laughs) Like it's all these insane, like every word that they think that we're using just like all the time and are like sensitive about the use of those words. And they also, all the book covers look like sci-fi covers. (laughs) (laughs) They're all like, they seeming like all post-apocalyptic, like there's an eagle in front of a, a, a U.S. flag, but it's like, has a sheen to it that makes it look like the world is ending. Ugh. I, yeah. love, I, I love those covers. I think they're so funny. <laughs> the world of it is so, and it's a, it's like essentially a grift because if you are a New York Times bestseller, then you can get higher speaker I can't fees. Believe that. But like, here's the thing: like, if what you are is a person who is a conservative thinker, and what you want is for people to listen to you, take in what you're saying, possibly internalize that. Th- that's like that is. If you want to convince people of your point of view, that is what you should want. You should want people to read your books. But if you're just a grifter, you would be totally fine with all of it being a fucking <laughs> shadow boxing show. Like, there, it is a grift. None of these people are actually spreading ideas. They're just making speaker fees and getting more Fox News hits. And, wow. like, it's all fucking fake. That's And it makes me feel good because— 
I mean, yeah, Donald Trump Jr. is still a New York Times bestseller, which is bizarre. But at least nobody, nobody's actually reading that shit, you know? My mind is blown right now. <laughs> Detective I mean, Aaron. I've had, a, I've had a big beef with this for a long time because being an author and knowing how difficult it is to sell books and to get on any of those lists. And I... I'm clapping for you because <laughs> um, this is amazing. I love I, it. I'm a book buyer. Like that is my number one thing that I spend money on now because I've talked myself out of spending money on clothes. I, you know, I've paid down my student loans, but I will splurge on buying books that come out from authors that I'm excited about because it's like they, they need my help. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I have a book coming out March okay, 22. Yeah. So, Ooh. you know, <laughs> I'm buying it. I'll send it to you. Oh, well, you. <laughs> you can send it to me, but I'm also buying it because that's just, that's how I support people. Okay. Um, what's, Julissa, do you want to go next? Yes. And I have changed my mind of what I'm petty about in the course of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was originally going to be petty about the interface of Apple TV Plus um, <laughs> because it's horrible. However, I, I remembered of something else that I was feeling very petty about earlier in the week, which was um, the use of tampons and how when I was a little, when I was a younger girl and I got my period, my mom wouldn't let me use tampons because she thought that I would lose my virginity to a tampon. And this is like a big thing in the, in large parts of the Latino community where, um, Every, like so many people, so many women believe that, you know, you can lose your virginity to a tampon. But what what it really comes down to is this idea that like as women, the only thing we have to offer men is our virginity. And like once we aren't virgins anymore, we're like devalued. And I remember my mom <laughs> explaining it to me like I was a flower, like my virginity was a flower. And once you like give it, it like it's a dead flower and you can never bring oh it back God. to life. Uh-huh. And, and... I uh, posted, I made a video and I posted about it on my Instagram and I was, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have been surprised of how many women, how many other Latinas commented of their mom having that exact conversation with them. (laughs) And like all of us learned how to wear a tampon like in high school from like a friend uh, or like somebody else's mom because like our own moms wouldn't teach us how to wear tampons. Um... And yeah, I feel very, I still feel very petty about that because I feel like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you were misled. I was misled. And, you know, the other thing is like, somebody commented on my Instagram. I was laughing so hard because they were like, can we also talk about how our moms thought that we could lose our virginity to something the size of a tampon? And I was like, yes, that is also giving you very low expectations. Like the whole thing, the whole thing. And I just really hope that, you know, if you're a Latina mom, um, know that you cannot lose your virginity to a tampon. And if you did, and if you lose your virginity, like it's, okay, you're going to live and you're going to be loved. You will be loved even after you're not a virgin anymore. 
I know, promise. I'm what is proof. what is virginity? You know. I mean, we could do some counter program. <laughs> Look, I, I have two. I'm of two minds here. On one hand, yes, everyone should be freed of the pressure of the artificial construct of virginity. I personally lost my virginity to a balance beam after an unfortunate fall when I was 11 years old. Um, that was the end of my hymen. Uh, it was <laughs> painful. <laughs> And I didn't know what was happening. And now I'm like, that's, it's kind of a funny story. Secondly, we could do some like malicious counter-programming here and just try to perpetuate the notion that if men have sex with too many women, their penis becomes very, very small. Like a tampon. Because the, yeah, the size the, of a tampon. Yeah, because the <laughs> vagina makes it smaller like a, like a popsicle that's been licked too many times. It becomes very, very tiny. So men... <laughs> No, I'm you just You know kidding. what? Though? I feel like men would turn that around and would be like, this is proof that I'm, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, or we could have, you know, maybe Playtex can like start putting extra, like extra uh, marketing that says like, still a virgin after use. Just like, just let people know. <laughs> <laughs> Won't take away, like, here's our new anti-gravity What's the, they have like, I love when tampons have like anti-gravity. What's that? They have like the new technology that the, um, the string has like anti-gravity technology so that you don't bleed into your underwear. But I would like them to also add, you know, something like you'd still, if you, if you believe in virginity, you're still a virgin after using these tampons. (laughs) Right. It's got magic virginity You will still bloom. You will still bloom. You're a flower no matter what. You will still bloom. Oh man, uh, that's a that's a great one, Tian. What are you feeling petty about this week? Mine's very, you know, personal because my partner and I are trying to um, rent a house here in Champaign, and I feel petty about the the listings that are being posted. I think this is just a general, just like any house apartment listing. One. Don't show us the place if it's already rented. That's happened three times to us already where we have walked through the place. And at the end, they're like, we're like, okay, so like we're interested. What's the deal? And every time they were like, it's actually already rented. And I'm like, well, what? It, well, <laughs> why did you just waste our time? <laughs> um and the other thing that I feel petty about is like accurate pictures, okay? Like show me the scary thing that's in the house so that I can make a decision beforehand if I'm worried about insane fireplace water damage. Um, just let me know. Just like show all the spooky scaries of the house. Like don't don't hide it from us, from the pictures. I just want truth in apartment posting. Yeah. And I think we we got this apartment where we live now like almost two years ago. And we live in a part of, of LA that doesn't have a ton of housing inventory. And so the available inventory rent just like has gone up quite a bit. And the only reason I think we got this place is because the pictures were shitty. And I was like, <laughs> I like that street that it's on. I'm going to, it was like a blurry photo of the front of the house that was like taken from the street. And we're like five flights of stairs up from the street. And I was like, I think that looks okay. And then it's it's like a really cute little spot. But I saw the like ugly outside first. And I was like, I'm fine with that. Yeah. And, it, and that's that ended up being our place. Um yeah, I've I've also seen places where it's like clearly they use like a fisheye lens yes. to make this closet they're calling a bedroom look. Mm. <laughs> 
like a, a adult human could go inside of it. But um, but yeah, there there definitely needs to be more honesty. In I need more truth. I need more truth in real estate. You need more truth in real estate. That mm. that that's my thing conservative is- book title. <laughs> 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 maybe maybe your partner can make her students buy it for their class to help get you yeah. onto the bestseller list. Okay, the racket is started. Can't wait. Okay, great. I'm glad we came up with a plan, guys. Uh, Julissa and Tien, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to Alyssa Mastermonico for being my ride or die. Thank you to Sophie Akoff of the Young Farmers Coalition for joining us to talk about the importance of farming. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Malconian and Matt DeGroote. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.